Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I am your host, Mark, and I am so happy to be joined by ambient pioneer Laraji. We take a trip through his vast musical history, beginning with his early musical influences, to changing his career path from architecture or engineering to music, to his discovery of the zither in a pawn shop. Even then, his path to music was not a straight one. In fact, it began in comedy at the famed Apollo Theater in Harlem. Through performing his music in parks around New York City, he came into contact with Brian Eno. And actually, Eno approached Laraji about recording together. He has a new collaboration with Christopher Bono called Now. It's a very exciting variation of ambient music that kind of stretches the boundaries of that genre. And it all grew from using free association and just a musical key in the studio. So check out Laraji and now on our silent canvas records. Follow Laraji on social media. I'm pretty sure he's the only one there. Follow us at Performance ANX. Rate and review the podcast and help support it through ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety or performanceanx.threadless.com. So sit back, relax, enjoy some reflection and contemplation with Laraji on Performance Anxiety, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is La Raji, just giving a shout out for the new latest release, Circle of Celebration, and we're on Performance Anxiety with Mark Shea. I can do it again if you like. Okay. Hey, this is La Raji, announcing this beautiful, new, exciting release, Circle of Celebration, on... <laughs> I can read it. Hey, this is Laraji taking a plug for our recent release, Circle of Celebration, and we're on Performance Anxiety here with Mark Shea. Good morning. Good morning. What, what time is it where you are? Oh, it's nine o'clock. Okay. Where are you located? I am in Winchester, Virginia, just outside of DC. All right. So, are you in New York? I am in New York City in Harlem. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for joining me this morning. This is going to be wonderful. Okay, I know it is. <laughs> uh, I'm with uh, Mark Yes, Shea. Sir. Yes, sir. All oh. right, Mark. 
I've had so, so many people pronounce that simple name so many different ways, but you got it right. Really? Yes. Sir, how I, many ways can you, how many ways can you pronounce pronounce Mark Shea? You can pronounce it Shea. You can pronounce it She. Um, oh, I've got okay. all kinds of weird stuff. I know uh, an Irish friend of mine named Mike Dick Shea, so I'm used to pronouncing the name Shea. And you know, being in that tri-state area, you you know, you grew up with Shea Stadium. Oh yes, I did indeed. I did. Never been, never been in it. I don't think I've ever been in Shea Stadium. I was there but... once, once as a little kid, but I'm not a Mets fan. Now the new album is it is is the project called uh, pronounced Noose or is it New or I'm not sure how it's pronounced. French spelling, French pronounce it now. Now. Like in N-O-W, now. Okay, okay. So I, yeah. I figured it wasn't going to be phonetic, so I was like, ah, I better ask before I mention it. Actually. Yeah, <laughs> so there's a little trivia questions, yes, about. <laughs> what I like to do is to kind of start from where your interest in music began. So that goes back a little bit to you know, you're born in in Philadelphia, grew up in New Jersey, went to college in D.C. When when did music really make an impact on you? Well, Body was born in um, Philadelphia, Hahnemann Hospital. Uh, family moved from Philadelphia to New Jersey when I was at the age of two. And I earliest I remember of music is my mother singing around the house while listening to soap operas on, on radio. Oh, wow. And uh, then in church, the Christian and gospel choirs sang on Sundays. So I remember the exuberance of the, of the choir standing with their robes swinging side to side and the organ pumping. And then there was the school public school system of Perth Amory, New Jersey, which was pretty big on getting children to adopt to a musical instrument. And the earliest musical instrument was a tonette, a closed-in black pipe. Oh, wow. And, and so you play... <laughs> a big, big accomplishment. <laughs> then on to the, to the fifth grade where the public school system of Perth Amory, New Jersey promoted uh, serious music lessons uh, and allowed students to select either a trumpet, clarinet, or violin. And I gravitated toward the violin immediately and started violin lessons, private violin lessons, and playing in the school orchestra. Oh, wow. Yep, and shortly after that, violin, piano. So violin and piano were my two earliest serious music study instruments. And my teacher was Mr. Hudak. He was he was this, <laughs> the school the I mean, the school system's um, music director. Uh, he was the orchestral director, and Mr. Janderup was the band director. So I remember going taking private lessons for violin and piano. And my mother noticed that I was very interested in piano earlier during church services. I would opt to go and play the piano instead of going out to play uh, during between Sunday school and church. And on Sundays, there was a, this one hour of uh, a militarized, demilitarized zone or whatever you call it, when nothing was happening <laughs> in the church. And I would take advantage of the piano and my mother 
observed that enthusiasm and invested in a, a very inexpensive upright piano, oh. put it in the house. And uh, she noted that my interest continued to be true and, and dedicated. So she sprung for piano lessons. And my earliest models of piano were Liberace, Oscar Peterson, uh, Earl Gardner, Andre Perevin, Bill Evans, and of course, Fats Domino yeah. and little, little Richard, who showed me that you could bang the piano too and <laughs> make a million dollars. At what point did you really decide you wanted to take music seriously and, and had thoughts of making it a profession? Well, that's a very good question because up until maybe the second year of high school, I was pretty much impressed with the idea of becoming either an architect or a chemical engineer. Oh, wow. And I, and I had applied to all these colleges, Rensselaer Polytech, MIT, Stevens Institute, for their college catalog, which would come in the mail, a very thick book in an envelope. And that would be the delight of, of my uh, life at those times, seeing that large catalog in my mailbox yeah and it would, it would just stoke the energies up to go to these colleges so there i was planning an engineering career and i had taken all the right subjects in high school drafting science german and somewhere around the second year while uh, in my evening after school job at robert hall clothing store a very slow night, uh, I was at the wrapping desk and the two salesmen, three people who were on duty, because it was a slow night, they were congregating around my clothes wrapping desk, just shooting the breeze. And shooting the breeze means talking about their wives. <laughs> 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 and so eventually the subject got around to uh, me and uh, colleges, and they talked about uh, colleges, Howard University. They brought up the subject. I've never heard of Howard University. Okay. And they um, ran it with very high ratings of a black college and had a fine music school. And as soon as they brought that subject up, something went off in my adrenaline and uh, adrenaline, adrenaline glands or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, I just got this picture, this big psychological download that music was where my heart was. That was what I was supposed to do. And so uh, in the next few days, I talked with my uncle and we planned to uh, a visit to Howard University to visit the campus. And uh, shortly after that, I had gotten accepted and I'd, I'd gotten some scholarships Oh, and wow. I broke this broke this information to my physics teacher, who was very proud of me. He just knew I'd be the next genius physicist or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I remember speaking to him in his office at, at school, letting him know that I was no longer interested in becoming a, an engineer or a scientist, but I was now going to be a musician and going to compose music. Wow. And at that point, I saw this famous smile his name was Mr. White. His smile slipped from his face of approval. And I had never gotten a smile from him again um, from then on, all the way up to the last year of college. Oh. 
yeah, so that was one of the sacrifices of, of following your heart. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some yeah. involved in that. Yes. And so there I went off to Howard University and studied music theory and composition with a piano major. And I've never regretted making that choice. And nor should you. Where yeah. Where did the comedy come in? Because you ended up going to New York City to pursue comedy and acting. Yes. Well, I grew up in a very laughter-friendly society, from church to family. Uncles, aunts, cousins, we got together, and this laughter happened. And uh, so in school, I performed in comedy situations and skits very easily whenever the opportunity arose. In college, there was opportunities to be in a comedy team. I, in college, I met such wonderful comedic talent, and uh, two different comedy teams erupted during my college years. And, uh, and during that time, uh, the intensity of the comic impact on people drew a comment or a suggestion from some people that I should go to New York and try it at the bitter end following the footsteps of Bill Cosby. And that stimulated me because I knew about Bill Cosby and Richard Pryor, and I knew about the success Richard Pryor was having. And yeah. I said, gee, I wouldn't mind doing that. And if I could get money, big money, very fast, I could rent a fancy apartment with a large red rug and get a nice Steinway grand piano and get back into recording and uh, writing music. Ah. So that was my dream plan. So I went to New York, tried it at the Bitter Inn, and uh, got such a nice, encouraging reception that I went back to Washington, D.C., finished out the semester, and then moved to New York to pursue comedy and acting. Wow. Yeah, I uh, hooked up with a black theatrical agency who specialized in casting black actors and actresses. Her name was Ernestine McClendon. And her husband was uh, um, George Wilshire, who was a veteran vaudeville comedian who took me under his wings and taught me a few things and got me hooked into the uh, Apollo Theater. Oh, wow. Time in Harlem. Got me to meet the Schiffman brothers. And uh, so I got to do quite a few shows with the comedy team of Wilshire and Gordon. Oh my God. And then on my own, after Bob Schiffman developed some confidence in me, and I began opening and emceeing shows there with uh, Barry White, B.B. Uh, King, uh, Joe Simon, Carla White. Uh, wow. And our, and our very, it's a, I forget his name, man who's the king rapper who was a love song the heavyset man uh, white barry white oh, Barry white yeah yeah and uh, those were some sparkling years being on stage with some of my favorite r&b and uh soul singers that's uh, incredible but, yeah that it was and the comedy was pretty good because uh, I wrote my own material. But emceeing was a little tricky, especially at the Apollo. I remember one evening I had, uh, I think I had a day job and I didn't, I hadn't slept the whole day. And so I went straight to the Apollo 
and uh, opened with, um, I think it was uh, Bobby Blue Bland. And then B.B. King was supposed to be second. So when Bobby Blue Bland was introduced, I figured I had 45 minutes to go up to my room and sleep. <laughs> and, uh, somewhere around an hour later, there's a knock on my door. <laughs> you know, you're on, you're on. So I jump up from the sleep and I just run downstairs and run on stage. And with my wits half about me and I, looked at the audience and says, Hey, wasn't BB King. Great. You know, <laughs> and it was Bobby Blue. <laughs> and so I got booed. Oh. So there was a constant boo drone going on at the Harlem. And, uh, that was the, that's called bombing. And that is a very isolating experience because my function was to stay on stage until BB King's was ready behind the curtain. So there I was on stage with a spotlight on me and the audience was having their famous Apollo fun of boo booing me. And well, I didn't have to finish my act. Booing was the act. <laughs> oh, yes. No. Oh. So that was my, one of my experiences at the Apollo. Wow. But uh, later on, I didn't realize that my being intimately uh, involved with productions involving soul singing and R&B and jazz, uh, and it infused in me a sense of uh, capability of handling those mediums. So they kind of that medium slipped into that influence slipped into some of my music later on when I joined a jazz rock band called Winds of Change. Oh wow! Played elect electric piano, Fender Rhodes piano and guitar as well. And somewhere along the way, I've got the inspiration to explore and experiment with the electric auto harp. Right, yeah. And yeah, and then my, uh, some of my influences, jazz and um, some rock, some R&B, I experimented with the instrument, but at that same time, around 1974 to 77, I was in a residential transition from Queens, New York to Park Slope. And I moved to Park Slope. It was the ideal opportunity to hang out with a very hippie experimental musical community there. And so I had my electric auto harp and there was jams and coffee houses and lofts and on the sidewalks of Brooklyn, which was a pretty hippie, bohemian, laid-back place at the time in Brooklyn, New York, Park yeah. Slope. As a result of that, I, did, I l went into like a non-specific genre with the zither playing in all kinds of uh, musical situations that strengthened my vocabulary with this new instrument. And um, eventually, uh, working in a coffee house called the Aquarian Coffee House and Park Slope. The, my job there was to prepare the coffee house on opening every morning. And one particular morning, I'm playing the radio, which the mid speakers are pumped out onto the sidewalks there early in the morning. And uh, I'm noticing two nuns are standing outside the coffee house listening. And I hadn't noticed that the radio station I had on was playing music by Stephen Halpern and Yassos called Christening for Listening. 
And so I listened much closer to that music and I was amazed at the form. It seemed to drift without trying to rush to a close or a, or a beginning. And it seemed to represent a, a super positivity in the music, christening for listening. So that was my introduction to the direction now called New Age Music. Stephen Halpern might have played some role in getting that name to stick for the industry. Okay. So there I was now exploring this with confidence, this music that was being inspired out of my meditation experiences of this uh, music that was hyper positive. It was not about the human emotional experience on the ground, suffering day to day. Right, right. But it was more the... uh, the spirit connecting with uh, the consciousness that there's eternity, there's a unified field, that uh, there is the supreme creator who is not a distant, far off, uh, hard to contact energy, but there is, but which is in the self, the cells, the mind, the brain, right where I am, yes. available for a personal, intimate um, relationship. And that sense of personal relationship with the actual creator just gave me a sense of positive security that shined through my music and as my vocabulary for the instrument this new instrument electric open tune auto harp advanced i started playing on the sidewalks of park slope then manhattan around the museum of natural history the the zoo central park washington square park parks and plazas in new york so here i was earning a living by exploring and experimenting with the idea of performing while in conscious communion with the infinite field. That's amazing. And the music would happen. And the feedback I got was that uh, people were going off into altered states. They were dropping their anxieties. They were dropping any obsessions that they had inside the human emotional event. And they were hanging out in a rather transcendental sunny positivity right there on the sidewalks of Manhattan. How did you get into playing the zither in the first place? How did you discover that interest in instrument? Well, a quick one that during my comedy years, stand-up comedy in the village, Greenwich Village, New York, the Hootenannies playing at the, uh, the different well-known, the Bitter Inn, the Champagne Gallery, the Gaslight, they all had talent super hootenanny nights where artists could come in and sign up and then go on very late. And I did that for comedy and uh, comedians usually were sandwiched in between musicians. And one night I was sandwiched between somebody and a bluegrass, Kentucky bluegrass ensemble. And the ensemble consisted of, I guess, bass player, guitar, drummer, uh, and auto harp. First time I saw an auto harp. Wow. And something clicked inside of me, like I made a connection from a previous life or whatever, mm-hmm. but a profound connection. Uh, and I noticed the instrument, but I wasn't clear how you would get your hands on one. And I discovered later on that they were in the school systems of New York. Oh, wow. And then an Appal- Appalachian auto harps. So they were very easy to learn because you 
auto harp meant it was automatically chorded by pressing chord bars on the instrument. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so uh, eventually, when I'm playing jazz rock with the Fender Rhodes in later years, living in Queens, married with a daughter, I was not bringing in much money with the guitar and with my uh, my uh, jazz rock piano. So I went to a pawn shop there in Queens, New York, to pawn my guitar, expecting I would be offered $175 for this uh, Yamaha six six still string guitar and a Martin's fiberglass case. Wow, I was, <laughs> I was having fun with it, but I, the clerk. As I was going into the pawn shop there in Queens, I noticed on my right-hand side in the window was its auto harp. Uh, and I just I just made a recognition of it. I said, hmm, there's that instrument. At the clerk's desk, the clerk offered me only $25 for the instrument, and I was not, not so positive about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as I was deciding this over, could I really submit to $25? Uh, I was aware of a voice, an intelligence, an, a suggestion, an advisor, just wafting through my audio consciousness. And I was interpreting it as a voice was saying, don't take money for your guitar, swap it for the auto harp in the window. Wow. And I was so impressed with the clarity, the the groundedness of this voice. It felt like a voice that you can imagine, a great, great cosmic grandparent who you never met because they were probably from another star civilization, wafting through and speaking to me in this dimension. It was like star trippy, star track trippy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I had to see where this was gonna go. This was a fantastic rab rabbit hole. And plus, at that time, in addition to my meditation practice, I was exploring many different spiritual modalities, and one of them was called New Thought Religion. Okay. And New, new Thought Religion was about, you know, if you could think a new thought or change the way you think, you could change your lifestyle dramatically. So here was an opportunity to uh, submit to a very new idea, you know, in the idea of a, a new idea to m submit with minimal resistance. Right. So that's what I did. I left that pawn shop with $5 and an auto heart. Oh. I made a little sneaky, made a little deal on the side. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. And I remember leaving that uh, pawn shop, going home with his auto heart, and I was now in a body that had a different energy to it. I was in a, a sense of the universe that had a different energetic spin to it because I was now following orders from a transcendental intelligence. Okay. And that is a very trippy experience to be following, be doing something, to be in an activity or a behavior that inspired by this transcendental guidance. So I took the instrument home and I tuned my favorite open tune guitar tuning into the instrument. And step by step, experiment by experiment, I evolved a vocabulary and approach to the instrument that involved my spiritual practice of uh, meditation, contemplation, and of actually feeling, having a sensual 
awareness of an eternity and a unified field. And all of these things were slipping into my instrument. And now and then my influences from the, from uh, Apollo Theater would slip in. So it was jazz rock rhythms or uh, R&B groovy chords hanging out with a groovy chord, D minor seventh. Oh, nice. D minor ninth. And eventually when a family moved from Queens to Park Slope, I continued exploring and experimenting with this open tune auto harp. And the community, the musical community of Park Slope provided a wonderful woodshed for me to develop the instrument and play on the sidewalks of Brooklyn and New York and eventually get invited to play for street festivals. Oh, wow. Yeah. And And, uh, and you're basically teaching yourself how to play the instrument at this point then. Yes. And of course, since I had gone to college and I learned the piano and being in a music school, I learned how to play band instruments too, part of the curriculum. Right. And so I had this sense of how to invent exercises to develop on an instrument. And so I used my technology, how to develop a vocabulary for a new instrument. It's okay. just turn the tape recorder on and explore, bang, hammer, strum. And after an hour of listening back to the tape recorder, hearing things that were interesting and picking those things out and building an exercise around them and doing that exercise for a hundred times to get it into my subconscious mind. So I developed this vocabulary, effects and approaches and patterns and, and treatments for the electric auto harp that allowed me to perform for hours and provide music that was relaxing. It would uh, help people to neutralize subconscious stress patterns and provide people with a, a, a musical soundscape that, provide, that allowed them to sit or to rest in their more positive, euphoric, blissful options. Of, okay. Uh, We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. I want to take a minute and talk about our sponsor, Tiesta Tea. Tiesta is a tea company on a mission to create loose leaf tea beverages with premium ingredients that taste good and do good. Each tea is blended for one of five categories so you can energize, slenderize, boost antioxidants, boost immunity, and relax. My current favorite is Blueberry Wild Chow. You know, when I was growing up, my dad always told me, once you go loose, you never go bagged. And you know what? He was right. Go to tiestatea.com and use the promo code ANXIETY15 at checkout to get 15% off your order. Think you know tea? You haven't tried Tiesta Tea. How did this all grow into your first album, an actual release? Well, uh, 
uh, I began getting requests for cassette tapes, and so I started okay. developing my own recording situation situation at home and recording individual cassettes at a time, one at a time. Wow. <laughs> uh, that, that would get me an extra 10 or $15, a couple of them on a daily basis. And then uh, one particular evening of playing music for a holistic center in New York City, I would play music to relax the audience before the lecture. And this one particular evening, I was doing this drifting, new agey kind of drone contemplative music. And uh, usually with my eyes closed, sitting in the cross leg position. And I'd open my eyes now and then to check the time and check the status of the audience. And I noticed as the audience was coming together, one particular gentleman in the audience was sitting there cross leg with this grumpy look on his face. <laughs> and I'm thinking, oops, I must be boring the heck out of this man. You know? <laughs> and so I, wound down the music and the lecture happened. And after the evening, this gentleman came over to me. He happened to be a lawyer and a very high powered New York firm, Stuart White. And he shared with me that uh, my music had put him into a trance state of deep relaxation. So I had misread his body language. Wow. And he said, and he asked me, are you recorded? I said, no. He said, well, I'd like to talk to you about getting you recorded on a serious LP. And so to make the long story short, within the next three months, he connected me with ZBS, a recording studio up in North in New England that was famous for recording the Fire Sign Theater. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I had gotten to stay there overnight and recorded the first album was called Celestial Vibration, and the album was called Celestial Vibration through Edward Larry Gordon and released on Swan Records, which was a label of Stuart White. locally and released through a record company called relaxation music so and cd and eventually into cassette and uh, cd and lp form yeah so that was local my first album a year or two later brian eno discovers my music while while i'm playing in washington square park late one night wow he leaves me a message that he leaves me a note ripped from his notebook and on it he uh, in the note he expresses his interest in talking to me about recording on a project he's working on he left his phone number i called him the next day went by and visited him in the village and we talked about a variety of things he has a wide palette of intellectual subjects and okay. eventually got around who got around to talking about ambient music. First time I had heard that title. And uh, it's interesting that he should have 
left me a note because a month earlier at that same place in New York, Washington Square Park, where I used to performing, a couple, a married couple, had hung out with me for about an hour listening to my music and then afterwards talking about Fripp and Eno and suggesting that I should get in touch with their music. Uh, so I didn't have a chance to I didn't have a chance to check it out before Brian Eno showed up and left me a message. So we agreed to go into a local studio on Green Street there in Village and record for this album series, his Ampion series. And the f generally I record about three or four long pieces and then we uh, start editing out the best. Mm -hmm. After the editing session from that, that studio recording session, we discovered that all the up energy, the dance numbers were great as is, but the soft meditative attempts were accompanied by strange mechanical sounds bleeding into the studio from other parts of that industrial building we're in. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was our, our response, too. <laughs> oh, oh <sure>. wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, no. Because that was also uh, part of my learning that uh, I'm used to recording at home with just my electric pickup going into the uh, speaker or going into the recorder. Mm -hmm. And here, Brian was introducing me to the power of high-end microphones. Okay. Yeah, so uh, that album was the first album I used depended on high-quality microphones. And, of course, they pick up the low end of the rumble of things in the distance. Yeah. And then that... That recording studio was probably built for a rock band and jazz. So anyhow, six months later, we recorded the meditation side of the album in a different studio. And the album was complete and ready to be processed for release through EG Records. And I recall that Brian even extended the invitation for me to participate in designing the album cover. Oh, and nice. labeling labeling the uh, contents of the album and the title itself. I think my wife at that time suggested uh, in a conversation, she mentioned the word day of radiance. And, and it clicked to me, that's a beautiful phrase that I should use for something. And I use it for the album. There it was. My first internationally released album was 19, 1980 and 1979. The first real recording was 1978, Celestial Vibration. Yeah. And then the second album, Day of Radiance, was the first album that was internationally distributed. And it was part of Eno's incredible series, the ambient series, which includes the renowned music for airports. Yes, and uh, the direction that Brian had intended, that direction seemed to be fulfilled by 
the other ambient recordings with John Hassel and Harold Budd, but mine kind of slipped through the cracks into another classification. And so that record gets played a lot, good royalties over the years, but every now and then I hear someone report that the album was least likely of the ambient series, or at least um, conformed to what Brian had intended. Um, wow, okay. Because there I was in the studio experimenting with what I could understand about his sense of direction for ambient music and what resulted in my attempts to match his request was a music that wasn't quite in the groove of what he wanted for ambient, but went on to have a life of its own. Well, he was obviously pleased with it because I don't believe he would have released it if he wasn't. Right. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Now you've constantly been releasing albums since that first one in 1978 and you've actually released them as Laraji. Now, how did that change come about? Well, um, in 1974, during a, a meditation experience by 1974, 1972 to nine or 1970, 1974, I had dived into deep meditation, yoga and getting uh, an expanded sense of this thing called spirituality. And I'd learned how to sit and be in meditation for from 12 to 5 in the morning because it was so yummy. Wow. So there I was. Uh, I had prepared myself to have a clear audience experience or a paranormal musical hearing experience around 1974. This experience of a... Uh, a cosmic orchestra, brass instruments, and it just just changed my whole idea of what music could do. Music could be used to trigger dormant cosmic self-memory, the memory of eternity, of the unified field. And after that experience, during a meditation, I began researching what that experience was all about. And um, I found out that there was different music, spiritual musical traditions that recognize that sound as essential in getting consciousness to move toward the universal eternalness. And my music took that, uh, the electric zither took that uh, feeling and went with it. So my music was leaning toward meditation, yoga, psychedelics. And one particular place in Harlem, New York was a, uh, the Tree of Life in Harlem, which was devoted to psychic readings, uh, esoteric books. People could come in and sit down and read these books without having to buy them. And now and then, I would be asked to come and play for the psychic fairs. And on one, one particular psychic fair I played for, two of the brothers there approached me and said, you know, we've been listening to your music for so long, and the name Edward Gordon just doesn't match the experience we're getting so we'd like to suggest a new name for you and i said uh oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think i would do that too <laughs> yeah and i said uh the two brothers were sincere and i thought to myself if they suggest a name that i don't like it's going to be embarrassing <laughs> so i said let's make a ritual out out of this we'll meet in central park tomorrow you'll reveal the name to me and up to that point 
I had, unbeknownst to them, I had been wanting or been feeling it was time for a spiritual name that would have three syllables and would have something to do with the sun. That's all that I sensed. And these gentlemen knew nothing of that. So in the park, we had the little ritual and they unveiled the name. The name was La Raji. And they explained that it had, it involved the Egyptian name for the sun god, Ra. Okay. And it was three syllables, La Raji. And I'm impressed because uh, the name is actually honors the sun as a divine being whose energy swings down from the celestial realms into the earthen plane to lift consciousness and to benefit uh, the earth. And it's Egyptian in origin, and G is a term of respect from the Hindu tradition. You oh. add the name G, like uh, Mark G. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's an, ador an adorable term. And so here I am astounded that this name is being revealed, and also it's sort of a transition from Edward Larry Gordon, Larry Gordon, Larry G-O-R-D-O-N, Larry G, Laraji. Ah. So there I, there's a name, and I decided to add one more A to the name so that it would have a numerological value of seven, and that when the name is in uppercase, one would have a visible connect, visual connect with three triangles, equilateral triangles. Okay. So there's there's a name of La Raji. That's how the name came about. And uh, I was concerned that if I accepted the name, it would just start start a process of wanting to change the name again and again and take spiritual names over and over. But La Raji has stuck, became the name that I use on my second album with Day of Radiance. Okay. And other recordings after that. Uh, my family, biological family, had a little bit of a awkward time adjusting to it. Oh, I'm sure, yeah. 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 <laughs> but they were they were loving lovingly kind and eventually got around to enunciating it with a little <laughs> hesitation. Well if you explain it to you know with Larry G. Laraji, I like that yeah. I like that that way of explaining yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it, in some conferences, especially in the South, Southern conferences, they would have fun with it. Sometimes they wouldn't know how to pronounce it. Is your name Lingerie? <laughs> lingerie? Lingerie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's nice to have you here with us. I we love your music. We don't do those kind of shows here. <laughs> this is a family friendly event sorry sir yeah yeah the wonderful hospitable south yes yeah. so you've been releasing albums very consistently since that the first one are they planned when you go in and record them or is it improvisational or a combination it's improvisational and usually when I'm going into a studio to record is because the producer or the sponsor likes the experience they've had of hearing me live. Okay. And so there's that agenda going on. They're not telling me what to play or what key to play it in, but there's that feeling or the intention I usually have when I'm performing is to drop people into a shift 
a shift in their trance, a shift in consciousness, a shift in their mood to uplift the spirit and to remind the spirit that it has the options of being in bliss, of being in a sense of connectedness to the unified field or feeling secure in an otherwise shifty universe. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I, I've gone back and listened to as much as I could in this the time I've had to prepare. So there's so much. It's difficult to go back and do a comprehensive listen. But I remember the first time I actually heard you was preparing. I had the band Dallas Acid on the show a while back. Uh-huh. And the Arrive Without Leaving album that you did with Dallas Acid was amazing. I really took notice of ambient music and it kind of, I had a, a preconceived notion from you know, growing up and my mom listening to, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the artist that she liked, um, Andres Volenweeder. That's, that's yes. It. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what I grew up with, with it just, and it was relaxing and, and very meditative, but as a teenage boy, in suburban New Jersey, I was more interested in heavy metal than, <laughs> than meditating. Yeah. So I never really paid attention to what she was listening to. So the first time I listened was with you and, and Dallas Asin. I actually, you know, sat down and listened. And it was a completely different experience than I expected. And it was amazing. And I've really enjoyed the work that I've heard from you since. Mark, I'm glad you brought that up, Dallas Acid. And that album, Arrive Without Leaving, that is a perfect example of going into a studio without a script, without a lead sheet, of um, just suggesting to the performers what key the zither is tuned in. And then we just jump into free association and what evolved with lots of music that they uh, edited to create this album. That is incredible. And afterwards, do you play live? Are, are you, when, when you go, are, are people expecting to hear something from the album or do they understand you, or are they prepared that it's mostly going to be improvisational? Uh, on my European tours, it's all improvisational, even though they know that I'm connected with Day of Radiance and Flow Goes the Universe. Mm -hmm. It's just within a few years before the pandemic, now the pandemic, pardon me, happened. The uh, I started getting requests of people who are nostalgic for Day of Radiance, oh. and so I I attempted to perform Day of Radiance, which was simply 
listening to the album and tuning my zither to those tunings. And I considered the music to be a continuum. You just improvise in that same tuning with the same certain vocabulary. And so what evolves is is a sensation of the day of radiance extending as a continuum. Oh, wonderful. But, but never try to produce something exact that, that would not make life happy for me. If I had to, that, that's one of the, uh, the healing, the therapeutic uh, advantages of doing new age music, new, new all the time, being in the moment and using the instrument as an extension of, of a mindful witnessing, uh, active witnessing, passive witnessing, and letting the witnessing express through the music simultaneously with my being in a trance or meditation state. So there's a new album, a new collaboration with for you uh, with Christopher uh, Bono and R.G. Osananda. Now you've yes. worked with R.G. A, a lot in the past. Yes. She grew out of my... Uh, associations with the, the sound healing community. I met her during a, a sound healing intensive in Loveland, Colorado. And uh, the name was no accident. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just enjoyed her energy. And I felt that she had so much positivity, sweetness and warmth to share with people, friends and strangers alike, that I thought, gee, this is a, I'd like to see where I could share my karma with her, meaning share my performance lifestyle and somehow let her hear the music I'm doing, invite her to concerts. Mm-hmm. And she would come to concerts in New York when I perform and pay. And sometimes she'd pay to stay overnight if there was a dorm situation. And I started thinking, you oh, know, gee, maybe there's a way I could get her to be a part of what I'm doing so she doesn't have to pay for room and board and an entrance fee and and sure enough she was into bowls and um soft percussion and into reiki and uh, we figured out what she could do to let her energy her healing energy contribute to what i do so there we are in concerts more and more especially in ashram meditation yoga kind of situations that were local that we explored and experiment with the idea of her assisting me. Uh, at that time, I was doing uh, official professional overseas touring. So I would do those solo or with ensembles that uh, were presented to me by the booking company. So eventually, Archie's work with me was becoming more, you know, you could depend on where we would go together in the music and I, I learned I could trust the direction would be therapeutic. Right. And so I invited her to be on tour with me when the money was right and her schedule allowed. So there she is. And so more and more, I still do a lot of solo work. I like solo work. I also like ensemble work as well when I'm in the company of those who have a sense of, of the capacity of the listener to drop into meditation or to drop into a healing, therapeutic, altered state. How did you meet Christopher Bono? We met at Ananda Ashram, same time that both Archie and myself were uh, 
performers at Ananda Ashram uh, during one of their auspicious holidays or their sound healing weekends that Archie was sitting in a specific class of uh, Indian classical music Ooh. with uh, Rub Verma, who was a classical sitarist oh, at the wow. time, and who was giving classes at the Ananda Ashram. So beginners and professionals would sit in the class and learn the classical Indian scale from India and learn things about music on the uh, meditative side. And so at that particular weekend, Christopher Bono met Archie, and they continued their meeting into the cafeteria or the lake house. So dinner time, Christopher is sitting around the table with myself and Archie, and we're talking. And Christopher at that time is unaware of my track record with music, but he's sort of vibing on our energy, and he's deciding to take a chance with us. And whatever you do, I'd like you to come and be a part, find a way of being a part of my experimental music production that I'm producing in Hudson, New York, a month from now. And so we show up and perform, and he's loving it. And he's deciding, hey, I'd like to invite you to a, a recording session I'm doing up in the Woodstock area next month. And we show up and just drop into this, this uh, big recording studio with instruments everywhere, musicians everywhere. We just drop in, plug in, and take off. <laughs> wow. Well, I get that feeling listening to the album. It, so the, the project is called New. And yep. this is, what the, I think, the third installation in the project? Or is it the fourth? Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure. I'm aware that there are other projects lying around. So, um, and, and like you, I was experimenting with the pronouncing pronouncing enunciation of the name yeah and until eventually chris reminded me that it really about now it's another way of saying now now, now. why uh, are yes, i keep saying yeah. that I'm, because it looks like news it, it looks does. like news it does and but I was, you even told me that in the beginning <laughs> yeah uh, it took me a while to get out of it too i keep saying now's and news but now 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 it's now it is it's now from now on it's now Yes. <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed about listening to this was the laughter in the music. There is a lot of laughter from you and from RG. And I know you do laughter workshops. Is, yes. Is that part of the reason for the, having the laughter in the music of now? Well, yes. It's part of the reason because of doing so many laughter workshops around the world. They're now called play shops. Okay. Uh, uh, you develop uh, a uh, laughter by itself is already contagious and infectious. And doing the workshops so often that my own laughter became more and more infectious and contagious. And I got it. Duh. <laughs> why don't you use why don't you use laughter and performance as a healing performance art? You know, the laughter has so much uh, positive, luminous energies to it, to release energies, to release people from stress and struggle and claustrophobia and resistance, that after developing the ability to laugh on cue, why not use that ability as part of my performance art?
purpose of including laughter the same way that people say why don't you smile when you do an interview it, it brings energies into the uh, equation and i noticed that the energies that's laughing during a performance during a recording the energies that it brings into the uh, equation is very positive and very uplifting it absolutely is i mean each time i've listened to it I hear you guys laughing and I start to smile and I'm laughing. I'm in the middle of traffic. I have a 45 minute commute to work and it's yeah. not always fun. In fact, it's very rarely fun, but in the middle of sitting in traffic, I'm smiling and I'm laughing because I've, I'm hearing yeah. this music. Beautiful. Thank you for the uh, Mark G. <laughs> well, thank you for that. <laughs> you got a nice, infectious laughter, too. Thank you. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed the music, and it wasn't exactly what I was expecting. Like I had mentioned before, I was expecting something maybe a little more ambient, maybe even a little more like the Dallas Acid album. But there are tracks like Connecting, Hari Ram, uh, Giving Praise, with sections that are actually quite heavy musically speaking. so than I anticipated, but they're still joyous and happy. And that to me is a revelation that it is just, you can have that much, that, that heavy beat, that, that driving beat, but it's still happy. Yeah. It's wonderful. I'm very thankful for Christopher Bono, who had the wonderful, joyful task of sitting down with the miles of the, uh, <laughs> of the track and mixing it into what you're experiencing now. It is beautiful. And there are moments of uh, more ambient, maybe we want to say a contemplative feeling like ascending, you know, those types of songs, ceremonial. Those, yes. those are beautifully relaxing tracks. the songs just seem to move and grow and change ah, just, yeah. just effortlessly. And it's incredible. It's amazing that there, it, that it, there's different tracks. That's got to be a chore. I don't know if that was, if you had any input in the selecting what sections would be a, an actual track or not, but it's just an amazing experience to, to well, go through. Well, thank to Chris that he pulled that all together. I couldn't have done it. He, <laughs> he said he, he for um, 
it was a day job for, for five days a week and <laughs> for maybe a month or so he worked with that till he got it to whistle and and hum the way it does i think he, he did an, an amazing job but it, it couldn't have been what it is without you and rg in it so it it's just a wonderful culmination of all of you and i know there's a several other people involved like thor harris who i'm a big fan of too Mm. There's a a whole lot of wonderful musicians on this album too. Yes, you know uh, I've noticed your title, "Performance Anxiety." Yes, sir. Which was uh, now and then uh, I will just uh, mentor a performer who is concerned with performance anxiety, and uh, I remember my most intense for performance anxiety. I forgot my whole performance piece. This was during a recital in college when I had to give a piano recital. And and I stepped on stage at the piano and my mind was blank. Oh no. And uh, totally blank. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm saying, where are you? Where where did you go? That my whole preparation was just nowhere to be found inside my 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 mind. Oh, and uh, that was the most intense experience. And then of course being on stage at the Apollo Theater, I Learn how to get over performance anxiety. One is be prepared. Yeah. And uh, be, be prepared with something that you feel good about. I say that if you've got $20 in your pocket and you know that if you go out in the street and pull it out, you can give that $20 to somebody and they'll gladly take it because you know you're in touch with the value of that $20. You're in touch with people being open to be receiving money. Yes. So I say if you can get in touch before a performance with the value of what it is you have to share. And you, gee, I can't wait to share this. This is groovy. Yeah. That's one of the things that helps get over performance anxiety is to have confidence in what it is you're about to share. Either you rehearse the spirit of what you're going to offer, or re- in my case, I tune the instrument until I get to a tuning that is so yummy and luscious that I just can't wait to share it because I know it's going to invoke certain emotional euphoria in a listener. Mm-hmm. And so the performance, performance anxiety doesn't have a chance to get a hold of me when I feel that I've got something that I want to share, that I believe in. And another thing that helped performance anxiety was studying some of the principles of Tai Chi Chuan. Okay. If you're familiar with it, no, no. Uh, one of the, it's a, a movement, a meditative movement practice, where eventually the practitioner wants their center of attention to not be in the head, but to be, but few inches beneath the belly button and in in your solar plexus, so that you're literally, mentally, psychologically in your stomach horror and manipulating and managing your body's behavior from down here instead of from your head. So when I'm out of my head, performance anxiety doesn't exist. You know, they say get out of your head because that's where the anxiety is going on. Exactly. Yeah. So learning Tai Chi Chuan, I, I learned how to move from backstage to onstage with this uh, being centered in my hara so that the audience is not a group of individual beings judging me. I'm instead, I'm moving in relationship to a universal chi energy field. 
So the energy field is my audience. Oh, wow. Not a particular, yeah. So that's a different attitude. I'm not performing for individual ego systems. <laughs> I'm, perform, I'm, I'm performing within and as a unified field, if you want to call it a divine, transcendental, non-polarizing ego field. Wow. And so the, the direction of the music is much different. I'm in trance, I'm in centeredness, and I... I really love what it is I know I'm going to I'm bringing to the audience to the listener. Oh, that's beautiful. That makes me think uh, I have a question for you about the laughter then. Is so you started off in comedy and now you do laughter workshops. Were, were the laughter workshops because you have a comedic background or maybe was the comedy maybe a primitive early attempt at doing a laughter workshop? for an audience well my uh as you said at the beginning of it all i just loved seeing the human physique buckle over and lose <laughs> control especially in my i grew up in a government housing project in perth Amory, new jersey and uh, there were quite a few rough and tumble fellows in the neighborhood who would like to rough and tumble with you for the least provocation uh, yeah <laughs> so i learned that knowing jokes or being able to get someone into the laughter zone very quickly would uh you know reduce the sense of separation as i learned about laughter laughter is the shortest distance between two people and if you can collapse that sense of separation between you and a potential adversary you can buddy up to your uh to your friends very fast. So okay. I learned the power of comedy and being able to invoke laughter very young in life. Uh, when I got to college, did comedy beyond college into the Greenwich Village doing stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy alongside of my investigation of spirituality. Eventually I found out that there was something called laughter meditation. And that was a way of getting people into the laughter by just waking up in the morning and laughing for 15 minutes. Okay. And so I practiced that. I, I liked the results and I developed the workshop around that. Osho Rajneesh was the teacher at that time who put that suggestion forward. And so there I am guiding a laughter play shops and I'm no longer in the late hour. I'm okay. performing around, performing with audiences that are on same floor level with me, eye contact daytime hours and a therapeutic yoga set setting so that developed over the years got bigger and vaster i like to think of the biggest room in the house you know what the biggest room in the house is mark what's that the room for improvement oh <laughs> <man>. <laughs> so the laughter workshop developed kept improving over the years and got to where i can go three hours now with a, a very yummy experience typically wow. it's an hour and a half to two hours Oh my gosh. Wow. And, and Ar Archie was one of the biggest room for improvements. Her addition to the workshop, the play shop, it made a big improvement of uh, getting people to relax and remind them that there's still laughter in you. We can find it. We can bring it forward. So you grew from laughter as a defense mechanism to a healing power. Yes, and thanks for making that connection for me. Yes. Well, Laraji, thank you so much. I know your battery's running low, and, and I've kept it for quite a while, but I absolutely love the the album now. I'm yes. Get that right. There we go. All yeah. right. Got to keep saying it. It'll start to click. 
but I'm going to be uh, exposing as many people as I can to it. I know a lot of people who will really, really enjoy this and hopefully feel the same things that I feel when I listen to it. So how can people find the album and, and pick it up and, and experience it as themselves? Well, it's on Bandcamp, and there is uh, a link that I I don't know how to get it to you at the moment, but the silent our silent canvas is one hashtag you can go to to find it. Okay. Our silent canvas, and link onto that, and you'll see N O U S <laughs> now and uh, the albums Circle of Celebration. If you just Google Circle of Celebration. One should come up with it. Also on my uh, my uh, Instagram, Instagram. Don't ask me how do you get to Instagram. I, I'm still figuring it out, but it's there. I don't know how I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and and Facebook, are uh, and Spotify. You can find it on Spotify. Circle of Celebration. Excellent, excellent. So you're on Instagram. Um, you're on Facebook, so you have a lot of the social media connections. And I'm assuming that's yes. Laraji. Or is, is there is there a, yes. a different? Yeah, Laraji. If you Google Laraji, what what whatever I've done comes up. Okay, and yeah. that's L A R A A J I. Correct. Excellent. See, I got that right. I'm still struggling yeah. on now, but I I got your now, name right. There, now, all right. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much for spending so much time and delving into into your history. It's been really wonderful. Beautiful. Peace, light, love, and common sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. Get more ways to save at the buy five or more, save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. 
Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.